You're listening to the Recoveredish Podcast. I'm your host, licensed therapist, Amanda E. White. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I am so excited because I have Nora McInerney here. Hi, Nora. Amanda, I can't believe you said my last name right on the first try. That's amazing. I love it. So I don't think this is true, but if anyone doesn't know who you are, can you share about yourself and your amazing podcast? Okay. I'm Nora McInerney. I am probably best known for two things. One is that I gave a viral TED Talk called We Don't Move On From Grief. We Move Forward With It. And it was an extension, a passive aggressive extension of my other work. My podcast is called Terrible Thanks for Asking. It is a narrative interview podcast where we have for seven years talked to just regular people about what it is like to survive and live through things that we don't want to talk about and that the kind of experiences that need to be talked about or at least listened to, at least witnessed, even if it is somewhat uncomfortable. And these are not just sad stories. I don't believe that anybody is just a sad story. These are stories that have loss and sadness to them, but these are life stories. These are stories about what it means to be a person in the world, which is that we have an amazing capacity for joy. And we also inevitably, no matter who we are or what we are born into or with, will have to develop a capacity for suffering as well. Mm. So I've written a few books, mostly memoir, about my experiences. And I fell into this work. I really did always think I was going to be a writer, but I thought I was going to write a story about a girl who moves to New York, has a very fancy boss who mistreats her. Turns out The Devil Wears Prada already got written. I, I really did not think that I would talk about the things that I talk about during my life. But in 2014... My husband died, my dad died, and I lost my second pregnancy. And all of that happened within six or seven weeks of each other. And I was devastated. I was disoriented. And there was no way physically that I could go back to a cubicle and put together marketing PowerPoints. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't do it. I had to completely rebuild and reinvent my life and my sense of self. And it's been slow going. I just want people to know that it's been very slow going. (laughs) Well, I think this leads into what we were kind of talking about of just the importance of pain being witnessed. And I wanted to get your take on, I know you said that you've been being tagged in kind of TikToks of people sharing their grief. And what is your general thoughts about when people share their grief online and how strangers sometimes interact with that. Okay. So I first have a question for you, which is how often have you met with somebody who is sitting down across from you offering up a experience from years before or decades before, and it's still painful for them? I think most of the time, say a hundred percent of the time, I don't think grief or pain ever goes away. That's why I resonate with your work so much. You carry it with you. Yeah. Like if we're talking about it as a wound, I think it like stops bleeding, but you're Mm going to always have that scar. And I think about, especially when we're talking about trauma, like stuff is going to hit it and it's going to get triggered and it's always going to be there. It's always going to be a part of you. 
Yeah. And we, uh, what I've, what I've learned is how averse we are in Western culture, American culture. And of course I can only speak to kind of like the narrow band of my experience as a woman who was raised Catholic and white in the Midwest. Right. But in my experience, someone dies, you have a wake, you have a funeral, you do all of the Catholic rituals, and then maybe afterwards, for the weeks and months or maybe years afterwards, you might pop into the, a little part of the church and light a candle and say a prayer for that person, but it all kind of wraps up at the burial, and it, it's done. And I never witnessed what grief looked like or felt like growing up. And so when I did feel it as a child, when I lost grandparents, when Mm -hmm. I had an uncle die in middle school, I truly thought that I was a defective person. Mm -hmm. I thought that I was a person who was feeling the wrong things and feeling them too deeply. As an adult, after my husband died, after my dad died, after I lost that pregnancy at 11 weeks and six days, which for anyone out there who has ever been pregnant or tried to be pregnant, we really do think of the end of the first trimester as some magic portal to safety yeah. and yeah. and a healthy child. And yeah. you know, my own magical thinking was like, oh, wow, if I just hadn't gone to the doctor till the next day. Mm. It would have been fine. I realized how uncomfortable my pain made other people. Mm. And I kept it to myself as fast as possible. As fast as possible, I learned to put on a really happy face, put on makeup every day, and make sure that I was not on a list of other people's worries. Mm. Yeah, it was not good. It was not good. It was not good for me. It was not good for my relationships. But you brought up a trend that I've noticed on TikTok. Do you get these? I'm always curious what other people's TikTok algorithms bring them. It is so strange because sometimes I'm like, I can't tell, especially when it's like trends. I'm like, I can't tell if what I like is trendy or if the algorithm is just showing me a lot of things and it seems popular from where I am. Exactly. I do see them. I don't see them as much as you. I think probably because you get tagged in them also, mm-hmm. which which impacts yeah. it for sure. Yeah. I obviously see a lot of therapists, so I believe yeah. that the world is just 100% therapists, which skews my perspective. I just assume because, I mean, a lot of my friends are therapists. It's my work. It's my life. It's all structured that way where it is so interesting because I am so comfortable with pain because that's what I do. And Pretty much if you want to be in my life, you kind of have to be. I feel very connected to you because I also feel like when someone asks me about myself, I have to inevitably explain the trauma that I've been through or the things that make me me. And it's very interesting when I'm on podcasts and different things. Like I love when I have someone who is just super authentic about it. I wonder too for you, like sometimes I feel like I need to trigger warning who I am. And like that feels really strange I also feel like I have to be one of the only people who, when someone says, I like your work, I have to immediately say, I'm so sorry. I I know you've been through something. But oh, yeah, I feel feel all the time like I have to apologize if you connect with my work because I know 
that it just means you've been through something. It is a sign that the work that I've done has done its job if it finds you when you needed it. And there really is nothing more gratifying than that because the work that I do is very abstract. Like you write a book, you send it out into the world. If you see someone physically reading it, that's proof that they did. Otherwise, it's all numbers. It's all very abstract. So to see a person be like, I read this thing or I heard this episode is truly one of the best feelings in the world. And also comes with like a little bit of a, oh, like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. But okay. So we we are on different TikTok algorithms, but (laughs) the algorithm keeps serving me videos of mostly younger women, women in their like 20s and 30s who are crying, talking about the loss of their romantic partner. One of my favorite ones was, get ready with me to go to my boyfriend's funeral. And she's like, yeah, sorry, my boyfriend just died. And it's not the content she makes. She makes very, very funny videos about the service industry, which I barely worked in. And they're so funny. And all of a sudden, her content does this huge shift, and I'm getting tagged in it. Mm. And then more and more and more and more and more, I'm getting tagged in all these videos. And inevitably, there are comments deep in this video. And why do I look? Because I'm spoiling for a fight, Amanda. I really am. I am looking for one. I am looking for one. Inevitably, there are comments, and sometimes these women will respond to them, that say, oh, so you had time to set up a camera and cry into it? Oh, well, when I was so sad, I didn't, you know, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And that opens a wound for me. It really does. It really, really, really does. I did not make videos when Aaron, my husband was sick, when Aaron died, I wrote, I wrote and I wrote on Tumblr, guys. Hmm. Love it. It was a different time. It was a different era. We loved it. And I remember getting a few comments from people who are like, isn't there anything else you could write about? Not really. No, (laughs) actually. Not really. I can barely function. And Aaron uh, and I wrote his obituary together, Amanda, when he was still alive the night he entered hospice. And it was the last creative collaboration we ever did. He was a designer. I was a writer. If I had a funny idea, he would turn it into something. He was just the best at that. And uh, he couldn't type for shit, but he was very, very funny. So I was typing and we were just throwing things back and forth and The obituary was really meant to be an inside joke for the people who knew him and loved him. I did not know they would publish the obituary (laughs) because I thought they would fact check it. They won't. It is an ad for your funeral. Write whatever you want. You could write anything. You could be like, Amanda White invented the post-it note. (laughs) (laughs) And they'd be like, well, she paid a hundred bucks a line. Yeah. Let's give her that. She's the inventor of the post-it now. And Aaron was a big nerd. Like he loved Marvel so much. He loved Spider-Man so much. I'm like looking at like this, a Spider-Man, it's not a doll. It's a figurine that he- A collectible. A collectible. (laughs) Okay. It is very large. And so we revealed his identity as Spider-Man. We said he, he died of a radioactive spider bite, which, you know, led to him fighting a criminal named Cancer. And People only knew him as a mild-mannered art director. 
and his first wife, Gwen Stefani, is also mourning <laughs> him. And it went like 2014 viral, which was a totally, it was a pure time on the internet where I wouldn't have had to ask you what kind of internet you see. We were all seeing the same internet. And I got, this is, this is where all the work started. All the work started from this obituary because I got so many messages I got so many comments. I got so many emails. Some people found my address, which was disturbing and upsetting. (laughs) (laughs) I just got so many messages from people who had been through something hard. And I also, of course, like any unhealthy person, was reading for the negative comments. And what were the negative comments? Who cares? Mm. Right? Who cares? Why do you need to talk about this? Why is this out there? Okay. My husband died. You didn't see me making a big fuss out of it. And there's two things at play here in my, in, and I want to see if this like resonates with your experience working with so yeah. many clients. One, we do think of empathy and compassion as a limited resource. And yeah. when we see someone else getting it, when we didn't get it, it hurts and it makes yeah. us mad. And I could see that in people. I could see like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, like people die every day. Aaron wasn't yeah. the only person who died that day. And that was headline news for someone, yeah. but not for the world. And you want it to be headline news when your favorite person dies. It is so bizarre that every day is the best day of someone's life and the worst day of another person's life. It is so strange to be driving home from a funeral and see people in a car and think, where the hell are you going? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, like I remember yeah. pulling up at a stoplight next to like a group of teenagers, like blasting music, laughing and just being like, today? Wow. Okay. Must be nice. Yes. <laughs> I think it pushes a button in us that says like, oh, I didn't get enough of that. And now you're using it all up. I totally agree with that. I think empathy is a skill and it is something that you can practice and develop. And I think people think it's a, yeah, it's a finite resource, a no-sum game. If someone feels empathy for one person, it means they won't feel empathy for you. And Mm -hmm. in my work, what I see is the more someone cultivates empathy, the more they feel empathetic towards all different sorts of people. And I would say, I think, the world really needs empathy more than almost anything else. More than anything else. And like, if you are a person who did not get the kind of care and attention and empathy and compassion that you needed when you were suffering, I'm sorry. And I'm honestly mad for you. I am really mad for you. And I understand why that would trigger you to like be upset with somebody else. I think it's one of the uglier sides of grief that it changes us and it doesn't always automatically make us better, but we really, really want grief to be an enlightening experience in other people, right? We want to be like, you would not believe everything Amanda went through and she actually became a better person. Yeah. It's shined her up, right? It's shined her up. But first, like pain is ugly and like It's just so ugly. And I was at so many points in time an ugly person and I behaved in such ugly ways. And that is grief too. And it doesn't excuse it, 
But I think like we have such a limited insight into what grief is and how it looks and how it behaves that we are flabbergasted when we encounter it in the wild, which is why I love these videos on TikTok. I love it because we have to witness other people's pain. Like we have to. And this does not mean you have to like open up the fire hose of human suffering every day and drown yourself in it. There is enough. There's enough of that. But there was a video I saw and I wish I would have saved it because I'll never be able to find it again. But this woman, it was like a video of her like hugging her boyfriend or her husband or whoever. And it was like, this is our last hug. And then it cuts to her in the front seat of a car. I'm getting goosebumps, holding an urn, shaking, rocking back and forth. And of course, the comments were like, oh, she set up a camera. Yeah, set up a camera. Set up a camera. Record it. That is a moment of your life where your brain is so scrambled. And I can remember so clearly very certain things about when Aaron first had a seizure. I don't didn't mention he had brain cancer. I can remember saying to myself, you must remember this. You must keep your eyes open. Like this is yeah. real. This is happening. And so I can remember floor tiles in the hospital. Like mm-hmm. I can remember his hand with the IV in it, like the where his arm hairs are, the way his hand fits on mine. Like I can remember specific things because I was like, you are experiencing trauma. Stay with it. Stay with it. It's very hard to do that. It's so hard to do that. And if you believe that grief is crying, burying someone, and moving on, it is shocking to see a woman holding what is left of her life partner in the front seat of a Buick. I get it, right? It is. But someday that will be you. Someday that will be you. And it might not be the exact same experience, but like I do believe that all of these people, and for me on my feet, it's all women. Sorry. I'm sure men are doing this too. But <laughs> And if not, they should. If not, they yeah. should. Like all of this, like we are such a emotionally repressed culture where the only thing that we are allowed to express publicly is gratitude, happiness, joy, surprise. That when we see it in another person, it's unappetizing, it's uncomfortable. We're like, oh, that's wrong. You're no, up, 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 up. At least you fell in love. Right. At least you had him. Okay. Well, and I think people say at least because sometimes they think they're helping too. I mean, I am just such a big believer in it. You can call it toxic positivity. You can call it all these different things. But to me, on a basic level, it is not your job to take someone's pain away. It is your job to sit with them in their pain while they hold it. And we just try to snatch people's pain away, whether it's because we're uncomfortable with it, whether it's because we weren't given the space to do that, right? And we're doing what someone did to us, or whether we feel this pressure. Like I think parents, especially, there's such Mm -hmm. insane pressure to fix your child's pain, take them out of the pain, take them out of any discomfort. But it is so hard and you want to fix everything. And I think that is a natural human tendency we want to fix. It is just that you can't fix someone's grief and you trying to fix it is making it worse. It's making it worse. 
But yeah, we want to fix it. Like we want to, and we love when a problem is solvable. We yes. really do. It's like, and and I can look back at my life, by the way, even after all of this, mm-hmm. right? I don't think that I am some enlightened person who does everything correctly in any way, shape, or form. I think almost every time we encounter something, we are a first timer all over again. Yes. I, I mean, Aaron died. When yeah. Matthew dies, which he's legally obligated to die before me or no wait after me I can't remember we made a deal okay okay I think after I'm not doing this twice I'm not doing this twice (laughs) but should he violate our agreement and die first it will be the first time for me I will have never lost Matthew you know my dad is dead when my mom dies yeah I'll be a first timer again and it's like we're so uncomfortable with being amateurs we want to be good Mm -hmm. at things and I know that at times I have tried to snatch people's grief from them and shine it up and turn it into something else. And I can give everybody an example that just makes me want to die every time I think about it. But maybe seven months, it was within a year after Aaron died. It was the spring after Aaron died. One of my cousins died by suicide and it was really sudden. It was really shocking And I went to the funeral having just gone through my dad's funeral and my husband's funeral and witnessing people do the most bizarre things, (laughs) you know, like people from my mom's past, men being like, your mom is still so good looking. And I was like, well, okay, (laughs) great. Well, she's single now if you want to be my dad, you know, witnessing people at Aaron's funeral saying things to me like, you will still, you're still pretty. Oh, God. Don't worry, you'll find someone else. And I was like, okay. Or people being like, oh, man, you look so good. You're so thin. I'm like, great. I haven't eaten in three years. (laughs) Exactly. Is it paying off? Awesome. Yeah. Just witnessing all these forms of not cruelty, but just incompetence. Mm-hmm. And I showed up to this funeral and I was so incompetent, Amanda. I immediately, I couldn't shut up. I couldn't, I couldn't shut up. I was like, let me lighten the mood here in this what? Just idiotic. And then because suicide to me is so, it, it's it's truly the most tragic form of death. It is so – it's my – one of my best friends, Mo, lost her husband to suicide. I never even knew him. I never even knew him. And the pain I feel and the loss I feel over her husband, Andy, is so – it's so unique to the way he died, right? I want to reach through time and space yeah. and, like, stop it, right, in a way that you can't do with cancer. And I said to – my aunt, who had just lost her youngest son and not even the first child she'd ever lost, I said, I'd read something about like sudden suicidal ideation, how it can just take over a person and mm-hmm. it's and then they just do it, but it wasn't a plan. Yeah, I think when people don't understand that having intrusive thoughts, mm-hmm. right? Like intrusive thoughts yeah. of suicide can be a little bit different in terms of if someone has never experienced suicidal ideation and they don't realize that they aren't their thoughts, there can be this idea that like this is correct and this is what I mm-hmm. should just do. And they they almost aren't on guard for it. Where if someone yeah is on the sadder side, like probably me or you, we've probably yeah. had suicidal thoughts before. 
you're you're yeah. like okay i know i know what this is where yeah. if you don't and your brain can kind of get like hijacked with this obsessive suicidal mm-hmm. thought it can be a form of ocd someone literally doesn't understand and they can just kind of act on it right why did i need to say that you know like yeah. <laughs> Like, I literally was just assuming, you know what? She feels like it's her fault. She needs me to say it was just so. And as it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, shut up, have a ham sandwich, do anything else. Like, just shut your mouth, shut your mouth. And of course, we've had conversations since then. And she doesn't even remember me saying any of that. But the point being, I could not bear the idea. I could not bear knowing that my aunt had lost a child in such a horrifying way and I needed it to stop. It was so self, it was my most selfish impulse truly was like, I can't handle this because I can't handle the thought of losing my child. And I can't handle the thought that someday my child might hurt in this way Mm -hmm. and do this. And I'm sharing this story because I know what it's like to be on both sides of this, which is like your grief is as holy as your love. It is just as precious. And that does not mean you need to like close yourself around it like, you know, Gollum and go live in a cave. But like it does mean that it deserves to be honored and felt. And for somebody to walk up to you at any given point and say something like, well, at least you have four other kids, <laughs> you know, yeah. at least he had, at least he had a child focus on that child. Right. Right. If you're saying at least, I think that that's just like a red flag. Like do not ever start a sentence with at least, <laughs> but just at least yeah. and should, yeah. if you can just like take an exacto knife and cut those out of your sentence, like magnetic poetry, like you will immediately be off. <laughs> to a better start. Just wanted to pop in here really quick and share that now that summer is officially over, it is a great time to get back into therapy or to start therapy for the first time. My practice therapy for women has licensed therapists in 27 states across the country, or if you're local to the Philadelphia area, we have a few offices for in-person therapy as well. I'm also so excited to share that we have officially launched Therapy for Kids, which is our sister practice, and we will serve kids ages five and up. We have specialized pediatric therapists who can't wait to meet your kids, who also can support your family with parent coaching and family therapy if you live in the Pennsylvania area. Learn more at therapyforkidscenter.com. I think the thing, the moments that really stand out to me from that very first chaotic year of grief and loss are the moments where someone did sit down with me and just let me exist. And my friend Evan, Amanda, would come over after I'd put Ralph to bed and he knew I like could not sleep. And he would come over and we'd sit in the basement and watch Real Housewives, old seasons, <laughs> binge old seasons of Real Housewives. And he would just let me sit there zoning out. And then I would just randomly say something and start crying and he would sit through it and we'd go back to the show and then I'd go back to crying and he was just there for like the spectrum of intense experience and then he had to go to work the next day and I will never forget that like I will never forget the fact that he would just continuously show up for the most uncomfortable ugly parts of that experience 
Absolutely. I think there's this weird thing that happens with grief or any trauma where then you almost feel like I think the worst part of someone saying at least or trying to solve your pain is that you then feel guilty, right? You don't just have your pain. You feel guilty about the pain you're causing other people about your pain. And you feel like you're disappointing them that they feel sad watching you and you feel like then this burden and then it's not just your pain you're dealing with you're dealing with other people's pain and you're managing that so that is what's so beautiful about that story to me is it's exactly that it's that someone just sat with you and didn't make you feel bad and didn't put pressure on you and didn't try to solve it but was there was just there was just there and I had this other friend who I was out at her house and it was hard for me to do it was hard for me to be around like people who were married to men frankly yeah. you know what i mean women who were married totally. to men i was just like don't want him to die also would love to hug him but not in a weird way sorry yeah. uh, also just like watching you know dads pick up their children it was just a lot yeah. and i just remember oh my God. saying that to her and her yeah. looking up and saying well of course it hasn't been that long And it had been a year and I felt like a year was the expiration date for people's understanding. And I just remember thinking, oh God, like I am safe here. Like I'm Mm -hmm. safe here. Like she just like, well, of course. Like literally like, yeah, dummy, of course. Of course this sucks. Like of course this sucks. Of course it does. And it hasn't been that long. And I hear from a lot of people who are like, this happened a year ago. I'm like, a year you are just coming out of the abyss. It's just not that long. And it is so weird in general too, because, you know, a big thing I work with clients about also is it, it just, everyone's so different. It depends when you confronted it, what it looked like. There's pain that comes after it. And then you, if you find something new, you have to like reprocess what's happened. It is just this whole process. And I think that's the other thing that I'm glad you touched on is there is this expectation that you are allowed to grieve for this certain period of time mm-hmm. and then you should move on. And a lot of people get very, I think, fixated also on like, am I wallowing? Am I wallowing? What is the difference? How yeah. do I figure that out? Yeah. Yeah. How do you help people figure out if their prolonged grief disorder was such a controversial mm. uh, addition to, to the DSM? But I remember talking with one of my friends who's a therapist, shout out to Dr. Britt, and her saying, well, but this gives us something that we can show to insurance, right? Like this also Mm -hmm. gives you something that you can show to an employer. It gives you some kind of understanding that it's not wallowing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is like the crux of what's hard about, I think, diagnosing is there are benefits and there are drawbacks to it for sure. But yeah, I mean, I think that is what's so hard because it depends on the situation. And one thing that I work with a lot of women on is how long will it take me to like get over this relationship? And we all try to calculate based on like online, you should grieve half the amount of time you were with them. It's so funny because I'm just such a big believer. It's really about circumstances and what happened because Mm -hmm. a lot of times grief or any pain is also about you. It's about how Mm. your life changed, about how you recalibrated as a result of it. So someone you were with for like two weeks, you could actually really be devastated about way more than someone you were with longer because it's not always about just the time you had. It's about 
what it meant. Yeah. Like even I think for you and in your case with Aaron, it's it wasn't just that you were grieving your husband, you were mm -hmm. grieving the loss of your child's father. Yeah. That doesn't have a time stamp on it. Yeah. And I'm like the steward of his grief which is not something yes. that I understood in the moment. Mm. And Aaron was not my longest relationship. My longest yeah. relationship was nine years long. And yeah. I certainly experienced grief when Aaron was diagnosed. You know, I was, I was diagnosed with CPTSD a year later. It took me a year, almost a year to go to therapy. There's a chapter in my first book. I believe in like, you know, I wanted to write that book in the year after Aaron died. I wrote it in the six months after he died mm -hmm. on purpose, right? Like I could have written that this year and it would have yeah. been a completely different book. Yeah. And I wanted to write it in the moment because I was like, this is nuts. This is so disorienting. And the book is so chaotic. I think that is the fan favorite of books I've written because Aaron's death and my dad's death and losing this pregnancy and, mm -hmm. you know, being with Aaron for three years of yeah. cancer treatment that has not evolved since the 80s. Yeah. That has, you know, it's just a brutal, while also like, you know, it was the era of lean in. So I was yeah. leaning into my career, baby. There was nothing I couldn't do. Glass ceiling, never heard of her. I was having a baby. Is the dad going to die? Probably, but who cares? Like literally, I was just so oh just out of it. And yeah. it brought up like, right, like my experience was so unique because it brought up all these other parts of my life too. Mm -hmm. It like was, I was in a snow globe that wouldn't stop shaking and I couldn't mm -hmm. figure out who I was. And I kept looking back at yeah. who I had been for clues, yeah. for information. And so that book spans like adolescence and, you know, that nine-year relationship I had yeah. and all of these things because I was trying to figure out how they all fit together. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, people have asked, right, like, oh, is this work, like, was this work a part of your healing? And some of it was and some of it prevented me from healing. Some of it really did. And, you know, I have a tattoo that says some regrets because I think no regrets is a little unrealistic. I agree. I agree. You know, and what is life without some regrets? Like we are all just out here learning. Yeah. Well, I think that's such an interesting topic too, because I agree. I'm going to go back to my like metaphor mm -hmm. with the cut. It's almost like there becomes this thing where we like are so obsessed with what happened to us sometimes, or we so overly identify with it that we keep picking at it a little bit. And that is mm -hmm. so hard to discern. But I can say, for example, I had an insanely rough pregnancy. My baby is fine. I'm fine. And then I had an extremely traumatic birth. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of trauma from it that I'm still processing. And I mean, I wanted to say number one, back to what we were saying too, I only have one picture of myself pregnant because I was so miserable that I didn't want to remember it. Yeah. And now I am so disoriented from it. I wish I had pictures. I wish I had videos. I wish I had some proof that that happened to me because I feel so disoriented that it happened and you go through it. And I think that is what is powerful about recording things is 
you just keep going back and kind of being like, is this real? Is this real? Did this happen? And all you kind of have are like people around you saying, yes, this did happen, but you don't have anything from yourself that reminds you of it. Yeah. But I was also going to say that I started hitting this point too, where I was following tons of like birth trauma accounts and and all that really did help me. No one, I don't think anyone else can tell you this either. I Mm -hmm. think you have to discover it for yourself because if anyone had told me you're holding this too much or time to get over it, I would have screamed at them. Oh yeah. Um, And it would have been very unhelpful. Especially I think the internet is so confusing now where you can customize this algorithm. You could really make something your whole world. You could find Mm -hmm. podcasts. You could listen to TV shows. You could read books. You could watch documentaries. So that is different in that we almost also do have to be responsible for that and know when is it helping and when am I picking at this a bit? Oh, yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. No one can force you to see that. And I, there was a lot that was helpful about embracing the identity of being a widow. Mm -hmm. I never wanted that title at all. Who would? When Aaron was sick, we, there are some people who they get a diagnosis of any kind and they are in it, right? Yeah. And I just remember asking Aaron, like, how into this do you want to go? And he was like, let's just go to the doctor who diagnosed me and live our lives. Like, you know, you know, like, do you want to find a clinical trial? He was like, do I want to like move around? No, not really. I want to hang out with my friends. I want to like go to work. Okay, great. We didn't go to any cancer support groups. I just, I wanted my people. And then I had to add more people. I'm sure you know Laura McCowan. Everyone knows Laura McCowan. But I always quote her, right? The one stranger who understands your experience completely will do for you what all the friends and family in the world cannot. That is the cool glass of water in hell. And I was in hell and being forced to be friends with a woman who went to the same coffee shop as me. And the coffee shop women were like, you have to meet Mo. You have so much in common. What we had in common was dead husbands, full stop. Like meeting her and owning that word and calling ourselves the Hot Young Widows Club. And like that did help me. Yeah, she was, I think, like 36 at the time. And I was 31. And, you know, she was just so cool and dresses like Stevie. I don't know. She's always wearing like layers and... I don't know. She's just very, she's very cool. And I like yeah. showed up in like all J crew and was like, hi, how did your <laughs> husband die? And her husband <laughs> died in different ways, you know, like they died in totally different ways. But when that became like the center of my world, that word, that club being sort of like just surrounded by constant people who are constantly in like the depths of their grief with no formal training, by the way, and no way to like protect myself emotionally in any way. That was a hindrance to my self-development, to my mental health. And no one could have told me that. I simply must learn every lesson the hard way. (laughs) I have to. I think most people, if they're honest, do need to. Right? It's just different. It's just totally different. There's a chapter in my book, my first book, about how I don't need to go to therapy. I just remember like when I finally, like I was referred to a therapist by a doctor and the only reason I agreed to go, and this is like 
on friendship and on having the guts to say something really difficult to a person who's struggling. My friend Tyler, who I've been friends with for over a decade, and we've never lived in the same city. It's always been a long distance friendship. He and I were talking probably you know eight months, nine months after Aaron died. And I remember him saying, if you don't find a therapist, we can't be friends anymore because I can't watch you drive your life into a brick wall with your kid in the backseat. I knew he was serious and I knew he was right. And I wanted to throw up when I thought about it. And he was the first person I texted when I left that therapy appointment and I had to sit in the car for 40 minutes in the parking lot afterwards because I had just unleashed (laughs) several years of drama on a stranger who was like, I can't write on this notepad fast enough uh, for what you're trying to, for what you're trying to tell me right now. And truly, I think that he completely saved me. I don't know what I would have done. I love him. I love him for that. And he like really took a risk because he like, and he loves my son. Like he was very, very, he is a person who's like an uncle to my child and Mm. he was ready to walk away from me. And he was right. I was not okay. I was not okay. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I said I didn't need it. And whoopsie daisy. But I believe in when you make any kind of work, right? It's a reflection of who you were at the time. And who I was at the time was a person who was like, yeah, I got this. Right? I mean, I get it. You're talking to someone who was in graduate school, actively drinking. And I would go to my internship and counsel people on how to tell them how to stop drinking. (laughs) But I was different. I was special. Yeah. First of all, it's different. Second of all, can you smell me? But I think we should go back to the TikTok videos, which is why do I like them? And why will I fight for them? Why will I get in the comments if I have to and fight a futile battle against strangers online? Because it matters, because it matters. Your grief needs a witness and whatever you are going through, you cannot always take your divorce, take your drinking, take your eating disorder, take your, you know, the death of your spouse, your partner, uh, the loss of your identity to the people who know you and have a history with you, all of this stuff. You can't always hand it over to them and say, I'm just going to unzip and let you see all of all of these parts of me. It is hard to look at those things when you are alone in your right. room. I used to share my kid on the internet, which is not something I do anymore. And a part of why I did that was because I had lost my witness to our child growing up, right? Yeah. I didn't have somebody Absolutely. every day who I could be like, can you believe that he just said this adorable thing? Can you believe that he just picked up you know, an empty can and pretended it was a phone. So the internet can be that for us sometimes yeah. in a way that all the friends and the family in the world cannot. And you throw these yeah. things out into the abyss and they will find somebody else who is willing or able to look at it for you and to be a witness for you who doesn't have all of that baggage, who doesn't think like, oh God, like, so is Amanda okay? Should I maybe like call her? Oh God, maybe let's not invite her to brunch. You know, she's going to be like this, like maybe let's not. I just want to advocate for Mm -hmm. people feeling seen and heard however they can And when you see something like that, when you see a woman, a man, a person on this earth who is expressing their pain online, 
and your first thought is like, oh God, why are you looking for attention? You're looking for attention because that's the most human thing in the world. Yes, 100%. Who who doesn't need attention? Like everything needs attention. All living things need attention. That's unnecessarily bad. So, Well, attention also isn't – like it's interesting how we've created this idea that attention is bad. Yeah. Right? Like even all the way down to how we parent. Your child is attention-seeking. You just see humanity, I feel like, for what it is when you – see a child because it's just like this thing is wired to survive yes however inconvenient it is just trying to survive and that is like our essence that is our wiring that we just have gotten clever enough to kind of disguise as we grow up and then once you see that like when you see children as just our baseline humanity then you can start to see other people as just big babies (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know and then the most annoying person in your life you're like oh what do you need, buddy? Yeah. yeah, you need Absolutely. something. So thank you for having me. What a dream to oh talk with you for an hour. It was such a dream to talk to you. Thank you so much. And if anyone doesn't know, where can they find more of you, Nora? My podcast, I have several podcasts. One is called Terrible Thanks for Asking, and that is a longer form narrative interview podcast it's divorce month over at Terrible Thanks for Asking. So we are telling divorce stories and we are still taking divorce stories. There are just so many. Somehow in seven years of making this show, divorce has been like a backstory, but -hmm. it's never been the center story. And then I have a daily show called It's Going to Be Okay, which is like the opposite of a doom scroll. Every episode is like five minutes or less, I would say, like a little okay thing for your day. Actually, I just realized today as we're talking, is the one-year anniversary of Bad Vibes Only, my essay collection. It's one year old today. It's so good. Thank you. I I mean, I love all your books, but I I love an essay collection. I mean, I knew from the page when I opened it that it said, all I do is try, try, try. That's it. I mean, I am just such a try hard as well. So I just really deeply really Thank you so much, Nora. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening. To suggest an episode topic or support my work, visit amandaewhite.com. If you're interested in getting therapy from my practice, visit therapyforwomencenter.com. We're based in Philadelphia, but we have therapists serving 27 states across the country.